0: Welcome to the Voyages and Travels of the Ambassadors, the epic story of a 17th century trade expedition from Germany to Persia that failed so completely its leader was publicly executed upon his return. This is episode Oh, Hussein. By God's wisdom, because cats in Artabil have short lives, there are very many rats, more than in other regions. The mice chew up the people's clothing. Their woollen cloaks, for example. So, this city has a royal auction for cats. There are professional cat brokers, much in demand, who sell cats in cages. The Tivriji cat is a particular favourite, fetching a price of up to one hundred gurus. Still, it does not live long here. When the brokers cry their wares, this is the patter they sing in a loud voice: You who seek a feline, a cat to hunt your mice. To rats it makes a beeline, but otherwise it's nice. An enemy to rodents, and yet it's not a thief. A pet to share your grief. At least that's the story from Evliya Çelebi, an Ottoman citizen who was born in 1611, died around 1683, and documented 40 years of travels in a manuscript that apparently remained unknown until 1742. A complete edition in Turkish did not appear until 1938, And, as unbelievable as it may seem, critical translations had to wait until the 1970s. We will refer back to this book as necessary for the remainder of our time in Persia. The English title is An Ottoman Traveler, and I have the 2010 edition. Our own traveler, Adam Alarius, says Ardabil may be found on maps under the name Ardunil, and is one of the most ancient and most celebrated cities of all the kingdom. This is true not only because several kings of Persia lived there, but because Sheikh Sefi, the founder of the Safavid house, lived and died there. In this city are to be seen the tombs and monuments of the kings of Persia, he tells us, and it is a place of so great traffic that it may be justly numbered among the most considerable of all the east. The Turkish language is much more common among the inhabitants than the Persian. It is located in the midst of a great plain and surrounded by mountains. Mount Sabalan to the west is always covered with snow, and Mount Bakru lies to the southwest. The air from these mountains is sometimes extremely hot and sometimes extremely cold, so that autumn can even begin in August, and the air brings what he calls Epidemical diseases that kill a great number of persons every year. The ambassadors are not immune, and in addition to the great number of servants who fall sick, Ambassador Brueggemann and the company's physician lay in such a fever that everyone thinks they might die. In the greatest heat of the day, and exactly at noon, there rose a kind of whirlwind, which filled the whole city with dust, but lasted not above an hour, Olarius writes. The rest of the day and night is calm, which gave occasion to the Persian proverb, In the morning artable, at noon, full of dust. Across the plain, 60 villages can be seen from the city, and the tax revenue raised from local shepherds is very considerable. About two weeks before their arrival, Olerius says, more than 100,000 sheep had passed through the city on their way to grazing lands. The city is somewhat bigger than Shimaki, but has no walls. Every house has a garden, so that from a distance it looks more like a forest. But only fruit trees grow in the area, which provide no wood fit for building or for firewood. So the residents get these materials from the province of Kilan, which is a good six days' journey away. The river Balaklu divides the city into two parts, and it is apt to overflow in the month of April when the snow upon the mountains begins to melt. If the residents do not divert the floods, it is likely to drown them all. In fact, such a flood almost happens on April 12, and only the efforts of a thousand men, working day and night to build channels, succeeds in diverting the water into fields adjacent to the city. The city has a great number of narrow streets, and only five very fair and broad ones, planted on both sides with elms and linden trees, which provide some shade against the excessive heat. The marketplace is large and noble, above 300 paces in length and 150 in breadth. Shops on all sides are arranged so that every profession has its own quarter. On the right hand, as you come into it, you find the tomb of Sheikh Sefi and a mosque in which lies the grave of Imam Sade, who was one of the children of their twelve saints. As you come out of the marketplace, you come to a place which they call the bazaar with a great square arched building where precious commodities such as gold and silver brocade, precious stones, and silk are sold. Exiting the bazaar through one of the three gates, you find three covered streets with the shops and storehouses of foreign merchants. Olarius notes that he sees three Chinese shops selling porcelain and other goods. The city also has a large number of public baths, the largest of which sits on a little hill in the middle of the city and is marked by a steeple. Here, the greatest devotions are done on holy days, and there is a fountain at the entrance which is brought, underground, from a source in the mountains about five miles to the southwest. They take a tour of Sheikh Sefi's tomb, which I will not recount in detail here. I will note, however, that his description of it has been of considerable interest to historians over the years. Their guides inform the Germans that when Shah Abbas came to visit, he would remove his shoes several miles outside the city and make his way to the tomb in his bare feet. Fortunately, Olarius and his companions are only expected to remove their shoes at the entrance to the tomb. While admitting that they have some difficulty in expressing the proper amount of respect for the place, the Germans comply with the custom and are allowed to enter, but only after giving up their personal weapons, for anyone who carries even a knife into the tomb is subject to execution. They are taken through the tomb and eventually end up in the kitchen, which, as noted in episode 14, provided the food for their first meal in Ardabil. "'Thence we were brought to the kitchen. "'The door whereof was also covered with plates of silver, "'and all things within it were so handsomely ordered "'that it was not a little to be admired,' Hilarius writes. "'The great cauldrons were all set in a row "'and sealed within the wall, along which passed a pipe, "'which, by diverse valves, supplied all the kitchen with water. "'The cooks of all degrees had every one his place "'according to their functions and employments,' This kitchen maintains every day above a thousand persons, including those belonging to the house and the poor, among whom they distribute thrice a day, pottage, rice, and meat, to wit in the morning at six, at ten, and in the afternoon at three. On April 21, 1637, while waiting for travel orders from Shah Safi, an Armenian bishop from Erevan arrives to see the ambassadors. You will remember from episode 10 that Erevan, 250 miles west of the Caspian Sea, was captured by Ottoman Sultan Murad IV in 1635 and recaptured by the Persians in 1636. The bishop, Olerius tells us, speaks highly of what he calls the Christian churches in Asia and delivers a number of details about the state of the religion in the region. Among other things, he tells them about a monastery near Erevan that has more than 400 residents, that in the mountains between Aras and Kur, there are more than 1,000 Christian villages, and between Taurus and Kazwin, the modern cities of Tabriz and Kazvin, more than 2,000 families in some 500 churches. He says the Turks had recently kidnapped some 1,500 Christians, contrasting that by commending the Shah of Persia, for his care in preserving the privileges of his Christian subjects and not taxing them too much, as the Ottoman Sultan does. The meeting ends with the bishop asking the Germans to raise these issues with the Shah when they get to Isfahan. We discussed the military conflicts between the two Muslim superpowers in episode 12 and how two English brothers helped the Shah achieve important victories over the Sultan in the early 1600s. News of the Persian victories reached the princes of Europe and raised hopes of new political, military, and commercial alliances with Isfahan. Religious leaders, too, saw an opening to bring the Christian Gospels to Muslim populations, and monks from various European religious orders began to arrive in Persia. As previously noted, Shah Abbas I welcomed foreign guests in a way that the Ottoman sultans did not. Not only did Abbas give Christian emissaries a personal audience— Foreigners were allowed to present their causes before members of the Shah's court. Historians have even used the word convivial, meaning friendly or agreeable, to describe the diplomatic atmosphere. The strategy was designed to publicly portray the Shah as a superior leader who ruled over a system that valued knowledge, human reason, and the quest for scientific and religious truth. From the European perspective, missionaries who had taken a vow of poverty made perfect diplomats. They were of low social status and thus not politically threatening to Catholic high society. And they did not demand the level of financial support required by secular diplomats. From our vantage point in 2024, we know this arrangement didn't work out for the Safavid Empire in the long term, but it is useful to understand what diplomatic situation our ambassadors from Duke Frederick, are entering into. Catholic monks from the Carmelite, Augustinian, and Capuchin traditions were routinely employed as translators by the Shah's court. And although it was the exception and not the rule, there are several examples of friars converting to Islam in the 17th century and continuing to advise the Shah in foreign affairs. As noted in episode 9, Christianity was introduced in Persia in the Parthian period, that ended in 224 AD, and the Islamic conquest of Persia was completed in 651 AD. The Dominicans had tried to establish a mission in the 14th century, and the Jesuits made a similar attempt in the 1500s before leaving in 1568. In 1581, a rumor circulated that the Persian crown prince had converted to Christianity after the sight of a crucifix miraculously cured him of an illness. The Shah allegedly responded by requesting that the King of Spain send Catholic priests. That is most likely not true, but Philip II did send a diplomatic mission to Isfahan that returned to Europe in 1584, after converting a number of people to the Christian faith. The Augustinian order established their convent in Isfahan around the year 1602 and reported back to the Portuguese. Pope Clement II sent a Carmelite mission to the city in 1604, and they arrived in 1607 with a group of mostly Spanish missionaries who answered to Rome. Shah Abbas allowed the Carmelites to open two schools in Isfahan. In 1622, five Muslim apostates were executed for converting to Christianity. France's King Louis XIII, who ruled from 1610 to 1643, offered to mediate hostilities between Istanbul and Isfahan, and Shah Abbas authorized the French Capuchin Order to open their convent in 1628. Forty years later, Louis XIV negotiated an agreement that gave the French significant entree into the Persian silk trade, which is precisely why our ambassadors from Holstein are in Persia. Adam Olarius uses some of his time in Ardabil to investigate the Islamic pilgrimage to Mecca and the Muslim version of the sacrifice story of Abraham and his son. Muslims, he tells us, believe that Noah took 72 persons with him on the ark, and for that reason the number of pilgrims in Mecca should amount to exactly 72,000. Neither more nor less than that number may be received in the city. Any less than that and angels would have to make up the difference, and causing that to happen would be a sign of disrespect to the angels. The men wear a white turban made of wool because the law forbids it to be made of silk or of any other color. They commonly make their way through Jerusalem, then to Medina, then from there to Mecca or Mount Arafat. From Medina to Mecca, the men are either naked to the waist or covered only with a shirt. They travel quickly, at the rate of a trotting horse or a galloping camel, and they hardly take time to eat, drink, or even sleep. This vigorous pace causes them to sweat, forcing all their sins out of their bodies and cleansing them of all their filthiness. The women, we are told, are much less able to bear the inconveniences of such a march, and are allowed to bind their breasts with a scarf. On the tenth day of the month, all the pilgrims go to Mount Arafat, the place where the patriarch Abraham went to sacrifice his son. They spend the whole night in prayer, and near dawn they go to the city of Mecca. The high priest leads a camel through the streets of the city. The hair of this camel is a holy relic among them, and the pilgrims grab a handful of hair if they can, which they fasten to their arms. In the marketplace, the camel is given to the judge of the city who kills it with an axe. As soon as the camel is dead, all the pilgrims try to cut off a piece of flesh with their knives. This devotion is never concluded because there is not enough camel to go around. But many pilgrims in the throng are killed and afterward given a place in the history of martyrs. After this, they walk in procession around the mosque, kiss a stone left over after the construction of the mosque was complete, drink water that passes through a golden channel, and try to grab a little piece of blackened wood, which they sometimes use to make toothpicks. Valerius goes on to say that Islam has falsified every aspect of the story of Abraham. I can't do a line-by-line comparison of Genesis and the Quran, so I'll just provide a few passages from Valerius, because damn it, Jim, I'm a podcaster, not a comparative religionist. Sometime after Ishmael's birth, the angel Gabriel appeared to Abraham and said God commanded him to build a house on the river. The baby Ishmael had created the river by dancing. When Abraham said there were no building materials in the middle of the desert, Mount Arafat disgorged enough stones to build a house, which was converted into a mosque, and is now the mosque in Mecca where the pilgrims do their devotions. When the house was done, one single unused stone began to speak, complaining that it had not fulfilled its purpose. But Abraham said it would one day be the stone kissed by all the faithful. And the people Olarius talks to says this stone used to be white, but has turned black from constantly being kissed through the ages. When the angel Gabriel instructed Abraham to sacrifice his son, the devil appeared to Ishmael's mother Hagar, to Abraham, and then to Ishmael, trying with various schemes to convince them to disobey God. All three of them threw rocks at the devil to drive him away, thus proving their obedience. When Abraham put his knife to the boy's throat, the knife refused to cut. He tested it on a stone, which the knife easily cut in two, and Abraham was so astonished that he asked the knife why it would not kill the boy. The knife said that God would not have it so, and so Abraham sacrificed a goat instead. Some people apparently tell Olerius that the stones which Hagar, Abraham, and Ishmael cast at the devil can still be seen near the highway, between Medina and Mecca, and that today there are great heaps of stones because each pilgrim on the road adds three stones to the pile. On April 27, the governor of Ardabil communicates to the ambassadors that the elite Ottoman force known as the Janissaries has mutinied in Istanbul killed the Grand Vizier, and imprisoned the sultan's most important ministers. The Persians shoot off fireworks and play music in celebration, and the Germans fire their own cannons six times, ordering drums and trumpets to sound, while watching the fireworks from the roof of their lodgings. The governor, pleased that the Germans participate in the public joy, sends over two flagons of Shiraz wine and some kind of glass vessel full of sugar candy. They celebrate the birthday of Ambassador Crusius on May 1. On May 4, the Chancellor of Persia arrives from Isfahan to see the ambassadors, and they entertain him with German music, a great feast, and by firing their great guns every time someone offers a toast. On May 14, the citizens of Ardabil begin a ten-day festival celebrating the memory of Hussein ibn Ali, the grandson of Muhammad himself, killed at the Battle of Karbala in the year 680 A.D., The battle marked an important milestone in the schism between the Sunni and Shia sects of Islam, and the Safavid state used it and other observances in a government run operation to convert its majority Sunni population to the Shia faith. Over the years, Safavid shahs gradually instituted forms of piety specific to their brand of Shiism, and some historians say the reforms begun by Abbas I created a new dependency of the monarchy on a greatly strengthened Shia clergy for its legitimacy, a development which could be said to have led eventually to the overthrow of the monarchy in the Islamic Revolution of 1978-79. This particular festival is the most important date in the Safavid religious calendar, and it begins on Ashura, the 10th day of the month. As noted in Britannica's Islamic history, it is a period of communal mourning when the pious imposed suffering on themselves to identify with the martyrs of old, listened to sermons, and recited appropriate elegiac poetry. In later years, passion plays reenacted the events at Karbala, and through the depths of their empathetic suffering, they could overturn the injustice of Hussein's martyrdom at the end of time, when all wrongs would be righted, all wrongdoers punished and all true followers of the imams, rewarded. According to Valerius, the festival lasts ten days because Hussein had fled from his enemies for ten days. He had also been deprived of water in a siege of his desert encampment, received 72 arrow wounds during the battle, and was at last run through the body with a sword. The whole city of Ardabil is taken up in ceremonies and extravagant devotions. During the day, children assemble in great companies up and down the streets, Carrying great banners and marching from mosque to mosque, crying, O Hussein! In the evening after sunset, especially the three last days of the festival, the men meet under tents lit by torches and lanterns and cry out, O Hussein! with such violence that their faces turn red. After an hour of this, the men march through the city streets with banners and torches. Ten days later, on May 24, the governor invites the ambassadors to the grand finale of the festival at the palace where thousands of lamps are fastened to the walls, such that the building seems to be on fire. Alcohol is not allowed at the event, so the ambassadors are seated in front of porcelain vessels filled with sugared and perfumed water. Giant candles burn in brass candlesticks four feet high, and other great wooden candlesticks each hold up to thirty candles each. Five bands of musicians play for two hours, and Hilarious describes the noise as crying or roaring instead of singing. Seven young men, naked except for cloths over their loins, are covered head to toe with black soot. They carry stones in their hands, which they sometimes knock together, and at other times smite their breasts to express their sorrow for the death of Hussein. A fireworks show ends the celebration, and Olarius tells us that most of the city's residents are insulted that the governor would provide such entertainment during the Ashur, which ought to represent only those things conducive to sadness and affliction. These fireworks consist of several very excellent and ingenious inventions, as of little castles, towers, squibs, crackers, etc. The castle is three feet square, with walls of colored paper surrounded by a moat. This construction burns for an hour and a half before it is consumed. Another firework is a kind of sausage, about six inches thick and three feet long, which throws showers of sparks from both ends that fall among the people and set their clothes on fire. The most impressive firework, called a kumbara, is fastened to the ground with great iron chains, and out of its mouth comes fire and such a dreadful noise that everyone fears it will explode and scatter its fiery entrails among the company. The fireworks last until after midnight. In the next episode, the departure of the Germans to Isfahan is delayed by eight days, they get lost in the mountains, and our intrepid author falls sick with a burning fever on the voyages and travels of the ambassadors.